Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series called The Family of Influence today, and we'll turn in our Bibles to Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 to 14, as Dr. John gives us a message entitled, Marriage and Covenant. I have a confession to make. When our kids were little, we had a favorite movie. It was called The Prince's Bride. I think we watched that thing so often that our kids actually had the lines memorized and and they could say them before the characters did. The movie is about the honest and good stable boy Wesley and the fair maiden Buttercup, who is, of course, the, the most beautiful maiden in the world, and the evil Prince Humperdinck and so forth. You know, in this great adventure, we meet the great swordsman Montoya, who's looking to avenge the death of his father, and the Turkish wrestler Fezzik, and then there's Vizzini, the Sicilian man of genius, and then there's the six-fingered evil man Count Rugen, and so on. And in the movie, we see adventures that take us to the cliffs of insanity and the dreaded fire swamp and battling rodents of unusual size and facing torture in the pit of despair and, of course, the castle of the wicked Prince Humperdinck. But the scene we loved more than any other was the scene when it seemed to us that Buttercup would be forced to marry Prince Humperdinck. You know, as the scene opens, in a grand church, we meet a priest wearing very ornate and sacred robes, and then we hear very solemn words, the first words the priest utters in the grand marriage ceremony. And it turns out the priest has a ridiculous lisp. He says, love to love And then he says, marriage is what brings us together today. And and even though we had watched that scene a hundred times, we would all roar with laughter. We loved that part. We all practiced it. I told the kids that, that I wanted to officiate at their weddings, and I was going to wear a robe just like that man, and I would say exactly what he said. But behind all that laughter and silliness was a very serious idea. Had Buttercup said those sacred words I do at the service that day, She would never have been able to leave Humperdinck and run off with Wesley. No, no, such a thing was unthinkable. There was no true love when wedding vows were broken and when words had been uttered before God and men, and these words sealed the deal regardless of feelings. I mean, we all knew that. Marriage was sacred. You can't understand the drama of that movie until you get that. See, how odd such thoughts are in today's world. You know, today marriage sometimes follows love, but it never defines love. And love, at least in contemporary ways of thinking about it, always comes first. And where there is no love, what commitment can exist? I mean, so we say. And this week is a one-week special topical series on the subject of family. But as I've already pointed out, it's not possible to, to speak about family without addressing four major themes that are found in the Bible. The first is the theme of gender, that is, the purpose of the Creator in making us male and female, and the plans He invests in our gender. And the second, as we are going to discuss it today, is the purpose of marriage. A third theme is the theme of sexual intimacy, and a fourth is the theme of gender-based roles. And so today and tomorrow, I want to discuss the biblical theme of marriage. From Genesis 1 and 2, as we've already seen, marriage is the first human institution ever created by God. Marriage was created before there was a state. It was created before there were rules of worship. Marriage is fundamental to human life. Indeed, the state and the temple are dependent on marriage. Now, having said that, I can can already hear the letters and emails that are being written even right now, which I'm going to shortly receive, so please hold off for just a moment. I'm going to start with singleness. The Bible recognizes not everyone is going to be married. 
The clearest teaching about singleness comes from 1 Corinthians 7, verses 7 to 40. Now, this is not the time for an extensive treatment on that very important chapter of the Bible, but a few comments are going to help. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7, the Apostle Paul writes, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Now, from that one sentence, I wish to make four specific statements about singleness. First and most obviously, Paul states that the ability to remain successfully and victoriously single is a gift from God. And a little reflection will tell us that that's got to be the case. I mean, after all, our Lord and Savior was single. The great apostle Paul was single, and they were single to the glory of God. Second, remaining single in every case means refraining from all sexual activity. Paul assumes that in verse 9 where he says, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. That is, the only expression of the sexual act is reserved for believers for marriage. I'll have so much more to say about that. But here I simply make the point that the gift of singleness is accompanied by the gracious gift of God that demands self-control over one's sexual urges. Third, remaining single in every case is a gift for it frees the person to be more effective in the service of God. In verses 32 and 33, Paul makes plain that marriage as an institution requires our full attention and our time. Husbands and wives are to look how to please one another. But a single person is not burdened by that and therefore has no divided interests. They can therefore give themselves fully to ministry without distraction. If they serve in their local church or on a mission field or in some parachurch function that may involve reaching out to youth or caring for the poor, well, they can put in very long hours and never worry when they're going to be home. This is to the glory of God. This is for the good of the church. So, remaining single is a gift. Secondly, it's accompanied by the gift of celibacy. Third, it's for the reason of unencumbered service. And finally, singleness promotes good order. Well, Paul says so in verse 35. He says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. There is, I think, a sacred order that is seen in the interaction of those who are single with those who are married. Each has a unique role to play in Christ's church. As we see that role being played out, we see what God intended for the way in which we should live. Both singles and married demonstrate that their lives are not their own, but that they belong to the Lord. And by the way, might I make a plea to those of you who are married? It's not right only to have friendship among those who are married. See, if you do so, you're not honoring the divine ordering of things. And I hear this from, from single people all the time. They say, why are we excluded? And so if you're married, please hear this as a challenge. Do not allow the singles out there to be put into ghettos in which they have no interaction with families and children and God's regular pattern for human interaction. Include singles and families, for they too have a divine mandate for their lives. Now, with that as a background, we move to the topic of marriage. Singleness is the exception, an exception that is ordained and blessed by God. Marriage, however, is the norm. We're going to see that in just a little while, but before we look at the details, I need to make a point. A part of the discipleship that we must do for our children in homes and in Sunday school classes and and from pulpits is to teach our little boys and little girls to anticipate and to be excited about the day of their marriage. See, I have two examples. 
The first is the example of one of my daughters. Sarah was still relatively young when, when Jordan put a ring on her finger and asked her to become his wife. Sarah was attending college during that time, and, and as she sat down to a day of classes, one of her instructors noticed that there was a new engagement ring on her finger. In the full hearing of the class, listen to what he said. He said, you're too young to be married. Why don't you just live with him? I would have dared him to say that to anyone else. Now, that's the wisdom of our culture. It's actually foolishness. God says so. Now, here's the second example. I was with Kathy standing in front of the sanctuary. There were all sorts of people that were coming forward in prayer lines. We, we usually had a prayer line every time we had church together. So there were numerous prayer lines as various leaders were praying for members of the congregation at the front of the church. There was a young man in his late 20s who came next in line, and I always remember his prayer request to me. He said, please pray for me. I, I'm struggling with overwhelming sexual desire. I said, that's good. Let's pray. And I, and I placed my hand on his shoulder, and here's what I prayed, something like this. Dear Heavenly Father, help this young man find a godly wife, and may he marry her quickly. <laughs> you know, that young man jumped back as if he'd been bitten by a rattlesnake. He said, I'm not ready for marriage. And I remember I said, oh, yes, you are. Your body, which is given to you by God, is signaling to you you're ready. Of course, if you'd like, I could pray that you'd be given a gift of celibacy so that all sexual desire would be removed and you'd be celibate for the rest of your life. And that young man looked at me stunned. He thought that I was from the planet Kuzbane. He couldn't imagine that anybody in the modern world would ever talk to him that way. I hope you see the issue. There are for Christian and biblical adults only two ways to live, marriage or the gift of celibacy. And even in marriage where there is an injury or someone is confined to a wheelchair, celibacy can exist there as well. Anything else outside of those options is, according to the Bible, sin. Family is the number one impact and influence upon the lives of our children. What is learned, modeled, our priorities and values are shaped by what we experience at home and create a foundation for faith and life. That's why we believe intentionally integrating family worship priorities within the home is critical. To encourage your family this month, we want to offer all of our listeners as our gift a wonderful little book by Donald Whitney called Family Worship. Within its covers are principles and practices for making your home a place of worship. We all have good intentions, but this little book helps transform intentions into reality. And it could change your home and lay a pathway for your family to know and experience Jesus in a greater way. Family Worship carries our Dr. Newfeld approved stamp, so you know it's teaching you can trust. Call today for your free copy of Family Worship at 1-800-663-2425 or by visiting backtothebible.ca. I have a word for parents who are encouraging their children to wait until they're in their 30s and then have their career established before they get married. What do you think is going to happen? Well, they will have dated plenty of people, and in so doing, do you not think that you're putting your children onto dangerous ground so that they either are committing sexual sins or at least encouraging them to have numerous affairs of the heart? 
in which the image of many relationships are imprinted onto their lives and form desires that will never leave them for a lifetime. See, youth is a time of imprinting on hearts and lives. You should not have numerous relationships imprinted on you. You should have one. It should be the image of your spouse. Marriage is the lifetime commitment of a no-holds-barred intimacy with one another. Where in the world did we get the idea you needed several relationships before you got married? I'll tell you where that idea came from. It didn't come from Scripture. It came from the world, and it is in direct contradiction to the plans of the Creator. See, I'm a believer in young marriages. I was 22 when I got married, and and Kathy was 21. Were we too young? Well, we went off to university together. We shared our income, shared the cost. We, We made stuff work. Was that a dumb idea? Well, I noticed that all manner of my fellow university students were living with numerous girls. I was living with just one, the girl that wore my ring on her finger and I wore hers on mine. Were we too young? Well, I must say, I was green as grass. I didn't know much about what it takes to live together until death parted us, but that young marriage has imprinted that woman on my heart. Did I notice other beautiful women after I had married my wife? Well, yeah, I did, but I had covenanted to be faithful to her alone, and so I built an image of her in my heart that she was the fairest of 10,000. You know, in my mind, I I can still see her today. I I remember the day. It was a day in summer. She was wearing that gorgeous summer dress that she wore, and she was standing on a hillside, and she was looking at the setting sun. I was kind of hiding behind a tree in the background, just feasting my eyes on her, she who was my wife, and thinking she was the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen. We were young, we were inexperienced, and we needed a lot of wisdom. And over the years, we loved, and we fought, and we made up, and we practiced grace. And that's what God intends the Christian life to be. See, let's see what the scriptures have to say. I'm reading Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. God in this passage is condemning Israel for her unfaithfulness. So let's listen in. God says, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So notice the wording. First, she is the wife of your youth. According to Genesis 2 verse 24, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Now, here's the idea that the man leaves his parents' home in order to form a new home, that with his wife. Now, this idea is almost absent from many modern Christian minds. See, in our minds, a man or woman leaves home long before they ever find a wife. The new home has long been established when a wife or husband is found. That's because the patterns have been borrowed from the wider culture and not from the Scripture. So let me say it again. I believe this kind of thing needs to be taught in Christian homes and in Sunday school classes. We ought to be training our little boys and girls that there is a pattern of living for Christian people. So Malachi assumes that your wife is the wife of your youth. And second, Malachi also assumes that the Lord was witness between you and your wife, whom Malachi calls your wife by covenant. See, marriage is an event in which God stands as witness. Jesus also said so. In Matthew 19, verse 6, Jesus says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. See, every once in a while, I'll meet someone who tells me that their wife or their husband, they're going to say, I don't know if she or he was God's will for my spouse. See, my response is, 
The only biblical response there is. The marriage covenant is witnessed by God, and he joined you together in that place. He did it, and it's done, so get used to it. And that's the thing about marriage. It's never a private thing between two people. It's a sacred thing done in the largest of all possible audiences. It's done in the audience of God. The community of God's people are also there because it's important that they witness what God has joined together and thus reinforce that this is God's design for Christian living. Now, a third item from the book of Malachi. Remember that we said that it was the wife of your youth and that it is a covenant before God. Now there's a third item. Breaking that covenant, that which Malachi calls faithlessness to your spouse, breaking that covenant means that God will not accept your offerings in the temple. In case you're wondering what that might mean for contemporary Christians today, well, why don't I let the Apostle Peter spell that out for us? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Malachi tells Israel that God won't accept your sacrifices if you don't keep covenant with the wife of your youth. And Peter says, God won't answer your prayers if you don't show biblical honor to your wife. But both the First and the Second Testament, we are shown that God demands his people live in obedience to the pattern of life that he laid down when he created the world. Now, I know, I know, there are a great many people listening to me right now that'll take objection. Some will say, look, in today's world where marriage is being delayed further and further down the road, this is simply not a possibility. Furthermore, there are a great many young men and women who would love to get married. They can't find someone. Now you're laying a burden of condemnation on them. So please hear my response. I am sympathetic to the contemporary situation. I assume we live in a world where God's standard of how he wants us to live has been replaced by an ideal in which many a young man or a woman knows nothing of what God desires of them. See, I know a great many Christian men and women who have never been taught that God wants them to be married unless they have both the gift of celibacy and are committing themselves to a lifetime of extraordinary service to the Lord. All they know is that they can make a great many choices. And in consequence, and often through no fault of their own, many Christian young man or woman is left alone because among eligible marriage partners around them, a lot of them are not thinking about marriage. But that's precisely my point. Unless we make both gender and marriage a part of discipleship from childhood up, How in the world do you think your kids are ever going to get the idea of what God wants in their lives? Do you think they're simply going to grasp it by osmosis? See, we now live in a culture in which we, and by we, I mean the faithful Christian community, must become intentional in training the next generation. If they are raised on the values they assimilate in the movies, well, they're going to find almost no heroes who are married for life and remain faithful. All of the examples around them will be single people who have the occasional fling. We will see one portrayal after another of people in their mid-30s who are single, and that will be the expected norm for them. We will have to, against the stream of our culture, create authentic and intentional Christian communities. We will have to reinforce not only the value of church and Bible reading and prayer, but also the value of gender and the value of marriage. God wants men and women to be faithful to the covenant partner of their youth. 
Now, why so much emphasis on marriage when young? Well, the answer should be obvious. There are two things, and we're going to examine them tomorrow. The first is the sexual act within marriage, and the second is the conceiving of and the raising of children. See, I'm telling you no secrets when I tell you that the early 20s are a time of great sexual urgency among men. And I'm also telling you no secrets when I tell you that among women, they have a biological clock. Their best years of giving birth to healthy children are in their 20s and early 30s. I mean, the constant delaying of marriage and having children has great consequences. I'm now old enough to have grandchildren, and I've got to tell you, I've noticed something quite profound. Raising children is best suited to youth. Marriage, family, the raising of the next generation, to know and fear God, all of this seems to be time-sensitive material. See, I think most of us, if we are honest, know this already. It's just that the pressure of our culture has intimidated us, and we're afraid to say it. So I'm saying it for you so that you might also say it to your children. And after hearing these things, are you discouraged? Maybe some of you are. But don't be discouraged. God is the God of redemption who can take something wonderful out of our failures. God is overwhelmingly gracious, but he also told us how we should live. So let's live as he calls us to do. Thanks for your message today, John. You know, it brings back a lot of memories when I was considering getting married and the age I got married at and things of that nature. And and the support I got from my parents or sometimes the support I uh, they may have discouraged at some times. But you know what? I'm thinking right now, so many things get in our way. And one of the things we put in our way is the whole idea of finance. We can't afford to get married or parents saying, you know, you're just not stable enough with your finances. What would you say to them? Yeah, I think we have to ask ourselves this question. Should a couple take upon themselves the burden of their finances or should we bring the finances into marriage? And I think uh, that growing up together, I mean, you know, you're in your early 20s and you you get married and you got nothing and you begin to plan together and you, you, know, you pray together and you face the challenges together. I mean, that really cements the hearts of a man and a woman to one another because they've done the thing together rather than doing it separately. And so that's really what I want to argue. Face the mountains in your life together and see that, you know, that two are together have greater strength than simply one. And and that's the point. Thanks, John. That's a great message. So join us again tomorrow for more of this series right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. This month on Truth and Life Today, discover what God has to say about the issues of salvation, divorce and remarriage, the believer's response to the Great Commission, and how do we understand our children straying from God when we strive to raise them up in a godly home? Well, Dr. John Newfeld provides candid biblical answers to some very difficult questions, but questions we believe deserve answers and answers to questions that we believe are found in the Bible. So join us each week for Truth and Life Today. Sign up on iTunes, sign up for our Back to the Bible Canada app where you can either view or listen or like us on Facebook and make sure to receive all of our weekly Bible teaching programs. For more information or if you'd like your question responded to by Dr. Newfeld, check out Truth and Life Today online at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.